Thank you for joining us tonight here at the 6 o'clock service at Coastline. And I am really excited for what we're going to do tonight. It is going to be different. I think you're going to like it. I don't think it's going to be terrible. So I think it's going to be fine. So I don't know about you, but the pandemic gave our family a chance to do some new hobbies. For Melinda, that was sourdough bread. She learned how to make it. Like many of you, they became an expert in making bread. But for me, I started noticing that my, my boys, I've got three sons, one who's 17, one who's 15, one who's 13, I started noticing that they were starting to put like man muscles on. And I realized that, that they're going to be able to take me soon. Like if I did not do something about this, like there was the day where they were going to suddenly become more stronger than I was. And so I thought, th this has to end. I have to exert my last little bit of dominance over them. I have to get in shape so in, fact, so in fact they know that if they ever think they can mess with their old men, they're going to come across just an absolute rock of a human being. So I began to work out, like a lot. Like so I've always been active, surfing, running, cycling. I've always been doing all this stuff, but now... I started buying weights, and like a lot of weights. And I started like working out a lot, like four or five times a week, and like entering my weight into like, an, or like my workouts into an app, and talking to friends like, this is how good I did today, and just generally getting super jacked and swole. So here's the deal. I have never worked out before in my life. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I am zealous for it. And so I am going seriously hard after it, and then I hurt myself. First time I hurt myself was my neck. I threw my neck out pretty bad. That hurt for about three weeks. Then I hurt my left foot. And then since I didn't take care of my left foot, it started hurting my left shin. And then because I didn't take care of my left shin, it started hurting my left knee. So I took a month off just thinking, I'm going to rest, come back, leaner and meaner, ready to go. Came back, hurt my right back. So I hurt basically all over right now. But nonetheless, I'm looking at this young man, and you're not going to take me. I'm going to still keep going after it. So one of the things I've learned in this whole process is that ultimately, doing something passionately, and yet doing it without training, it can really kind of hurt you. Ultimately, the more weight you're going to use working out, the more training you need to make sure you, you don't harm yourself. And, and that's just true with everything in life. The more power that you have at your disposal, the more power you have access to, the more training you need on how to use it. Now, just think about driving. Like, before you can drive, you have to do driver's education. Then you have to do driver's training. Then you have one year where you cannot drive anybody but a sibling. And then ultimately, you could drive other people because you are driving a car. It is massively fast. It weighs a lot. You could harm other people. So, with power comes a need for training. And that's true with every powerful position that you might consider. If you're going to become a police officer... It's going to take you six years of training before you are off of probation and are a full-fledged police officer or a sheriff. If you're a doctor, by the time you finish medical school and residency, you will have been in training for 14 years before you can practice medicine on your own. Because ultimately, you have to be accountable. There has to become some training with it because of the power that you suddenly have. I thought a lot about this as we prepared to cover this topic tonight on being worshipers. We, we've been in a series at Coastline called Foundations. And in this series, we've been exploring what kind of church should Coastline be? I mean, it's a brand new church. It can be anything, but what should it be? What does Scripture say that a church should be? And so we've created these values, and we've been preaching through them slowly. And tonight, we're looking at being holy worshiping. When we hit this week, I originally thought, Michael, this sounds great. You take the whole night. I'm taking the night off. It's just going to be a worship night, and I'm going to get to relax. And Michael came back and said, actually... I think that we, act, we probably need more teaching on this, not less. That we need more training on worship, more doctrine, more theology than just simply turning people loose. Because that's essentially what we do. We come and we play music and we assume that you will learn the songs or you will catch the tune and you will join us in in worshiping. And in a sense, you will teach yourself how to worship we assume that you're going to find your way in coming to the Lord. But what we don't take into account is that worship is in and of itself powerful. 
that it is an encounter with the living God. And since it is something that is so powerful, it requires training as well. Worship brings us into the presence of God. It invites God to come act in our world and in our lives. And we have these stories in the Bible about how worshiping poorly leads to consequence. We have the story in Exodus about the golden calf, about how Israel is trying to figure out who Yahweh is, this one who just brought them out of Egypt. And as they wait for Moses to come down off of Sinai, they take a little bit of the Egyptian religion, and they take a little bit about what Yahweh is, and they combine it together into this golden calf, trying to worship him through this form. And God judges them significantly for it. And in the New Testament, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira who sell some property, and they come and bring the, the profits of that profit, property to the church, and they give it, but they make it appear as if they've given it all when they've held some back. They're trying to make themselves look better, and, and God strikes them dead in that moment. And so God takes it seriously in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and praise God, we have never had somebody struck down at Coastline Covenant Church for poor worship. Praise God that it's rarely that severe, but it lets us know that this matters to God. And that perhaps we come in here a little too casually sometimes. Maybe sometimes we forget what it means to come into the presence of God. If there is a flaw in how we're worshiping, worshiping more won't solve it. We, we need some teaching and training so we can grow in it, so we can be directed, so that we can approach God as he deserves and as he desires. Part of the issue is that we have to come and realize that how we worship is significant and important to us. Augustine, who is one of the first great theologians in the church, he said this, that you are what you love. He's talking about worship. You are what you love. As a human being, you are going to worship something, he says, that you have been created to worship. You have been created to give praise to God. You've been created to be a worshiper. It is who you are. It is what you're going to do. He says the question is, what are you going to actually worship? Because you can worship yourself, or you can worship money, or you can worship sex, or you can worship your reputation, or you can worship your dreams and your desires. You can worship all sorts of different things, and what you end up worshiping is going to shape who you are, because it's going to shape how you think, what you desire, and ultimately it's going to shape what you do. And so what you choose to worship and how you choose to worship is going to shape you profoundly. Dallas Willard, as he talked about this, says that what and how we worship is the most important thing about us. In his opinion, you don't get a choice to worship or not to worship. The only question you get to have is what are you going to worship and how. But you will worship something. Tonight, we want to look at what it means to worship God and to dedicate ourselves again to it, to become wholehearted worshipers. You can see on the screen, we spelled holy worshiping, not as H-O-L-Y, but holy with our whole self. Because we believe that one of the things that happens to us in worship is that we actually halfly worship. We are somewhat here. We are somewhat engaged. We kind of worship in a coastline we want to be whole worshipers with our whole selves, our whole mind, our whole hearts, our whole bodies being given over to God and giving him praise. So that's going to be the journey we're going to go on tonight. Michael's going to lead us in the song, but before he does that, let me pray. Lord, we're going to chop this sermon up. We're going to shrink them down into little bite-sized bits. But God, we're praying that, Lord, you would come and meet us tonight and you would profoundly speak to our hearts, and you draw us deeper into a place of passionate worship for you. Teach us tonight. God, we are here with anticipation. God, we've reordered our entire weekends so that we could be here this evening because we want to give you glory. We want to give you praise. So God, would you teach us tonight how to do so in a way that honors and pleases you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can we stand together? have come to fix our eyes on you with hearts set on heaven where all will be new finding our hope within your truth 
have come, weary, worn, and heavy laden, worried minds longing for the peace of Jesus to the cross. You have carried all our burdens. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Hebrews 13, or going to be verses 15 through 16. It reads this way, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is one of the best passages on what worship looks like, that we have lips that openly profess 
his name. So there's something in here that I want to point out that needs a little bit of background, a little bit of explanation. The story of Jesus is one that actually begins all the way back in Genesis, that God in Trinity, God as Father, Son, and Spirit, created humanity as someone to be loved. They could pour out his goodness and show his holiness and kindness to. And out of that pouring out of himself, his desire was to create in mankind worshipers of him. And it would be this reciprocal relationship of love and blessing that would happen between God and man. Now at some point in the story of Eden, Adam and Eve break fellowship with God. They, they sin. They, they choose another way. They begin to worship something other than God. They begin to disobey him. And as a result, sin comes into the world and into their own lives. And every time we experience sin or tragedy uh, every time the earth shakes, every time there is a new pandemic, every time we are wounded by someone else's decisions or by our own, that is sin. That is the end result of the garden. And so God has sent his son Jesus into earth to take on human flesh, to live, and ultimately to die in our place so that sin could be forgiven and removed and so that we could be restored into a relationship with God and so that everything could be made new and right again. Now the story of Jesus, it ends in the Gospels with him ascending back into the heavens, him flying up in a cloud in this mysterious story. But as we continue on, the question is, what is Jesus doing now? I mean, his story is not over. He is still alive. Where is Jesus now, and what is he doing? We found out that currently what Jesus does is that he is currently in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of the saints, and that he lives to speak to God on our behalf. He is currently there with the Father, speaking to him about us. So that is why we have here in Hebrews thirteen fifteen the passage where it says, through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So our praise, our worship of God, it goes to God, but it passes through Jesus. He actually brings them to the Father, that he is still the bridge between God and man, that he is still the only way to the Father. He is the only way to knowing the God is to come through Jesus. He carries them, he advocates for us, and he himself Praise for us. That is important because what it means is that whenever we worship, whenever we come together to praise the name of God, it means that we're having a personal face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. That when we come to pray, that our times are not simply musical up here singing. They're not simply spiritual in terms of connecting to God. They're personal because God is there waiting to speak with us. And as we come and bring our worship, God rece Jesus receives them and takes them to the Father. But then the Spirit also comes alongside of us and he helps us worship. He actually fills in the gaps. The things that we don't understand or the things that we cannot see, the things that we can't figure out how to say to God, all the times where we get stuck and want to pray but we don't know what to do or how to express our hearts, the Spirit fills in the gaps for us. And so when we worship, we are always having this interaction with the triune living God. I don't know about you, but I haven't really figured out how to use social media yet at least in one meaningful way. I cannot figure out when I should post something on Facebook and when I should post it on Instagram. Are there rules for this sort of thing? When should it go on one and when should it go on the other? And what about Twitter? When should I put something on Twitter versus putting it as my Facebook status or putting it onto Instagram? And what about TikTok? When should I film a TikTok versus doing a tweet versus doing a post versus doing a picture? Or what about, uh, what about MySpace? When should I MySpace or when, you see, I cannot figure out when I should use each social media platform for which thing, except for one thing. I know how to use an Instagram story. Because Instagram stories are meant for one thing, and that is filming and posting my kids ding-dong ditching people. <laughs> it is one of those great things as a parent to drive your kids around to their friends' houses and watch them run out of the car, push a doorbell, make a face in the ring camera, and then sprint back to the car and drive off, feeling as if they've done something really dangerous, feeling as if they've done something very rebellious, and then driving off and laughing about it. I love doing this with my kids. Sometimes I think that this 
is actually a pretty good analogy of how we come into worship, though. Because worship is a personal encounter, a face-to-face encounter with God. And we come into the room, and we come ready to worship, and in a sense, we push the doorbell. Jesus comes to hear our prayers, to receive our worship, and we're gone. We came into the room, but we're not really here in the room. We're physically in the room, but I'm not really here because my mind is on what I'm going to do for dinner, or what I ate for dinner, what I'm going to do tomorrow, or the mistakes that I made, or there's my phone and there's a score that I want to check, or there's somebody across the way who I want to meet, or there's pews that are uncomfortable, or there's this huge soaring ceiling that I just need to stare at. And so I come in to worship God. I ring the doorbell, but when he comes to meet with me, I'm not really here. I'm here, but not truly here. And so the kind of worship that God desires is worship where we are holy presence, where we are ready to have a relationship with him, where head, heart, hands are here ready to praise him. It rarely happens, and too often we halfly worship. We're present, but we're not engaged. We are here, but we are checked out. And maybe it's because you're a bad singer, and you don't want to sing, or maybe it's because uh, you don't know the lyrics, or maybe it's just because something else is going on, and you're, you're just not present, but whatever it is, We come and we're distracted worshipers. One of the things that God wants us is for not only us to become wholehearted worshipers, but there is a thing that happens in the room when you wholly worship and when you halfly worship. I want you to imagine that when we begin to worship together, we become like this group of people who are holding hands across the church. That we are here in this moment, in this song, holding hands. Now when one of us decides to lean into worship, decides to pursue God, fully engages with our minds, they begin to lean forward and their hands that are reaching back to us begin to pull others forward. We begin to generate momentum and we begin to collectively move towards God together. Now sometimes we're just not really all the way here. We're kind of here, but halfway here. And as a result, we are people who are like, we're just standing still. And so although some are leaning, they're shifting our balance a little bit, but we're not actually moving with them. And others, others are leaning backwards. They don't want to be here. They are checked out. They are done. And they're leaning backwards. And so the room looks like this strange sort of stock chart of people leaning forward and leaning backwards, but the end result of when we half lean forward and half lean backwards, and some people are simply standing in the middle, is that we just go nowhere. It's just a song. It's just a concert. We don't actually go, but when we collectively begin to connect with God, when we know that he is here to meet with us, and when we lean in together, it's then that we begin to take steps We begin to move forward. We begin to make progress together as a church, together in our relationships with him, until eventually we are not just simply a body, but we are a movement of people going after God and meeting with him in that, until eventually it moves through the room, through the church, out into the world. And that's God's heart. It was that we would engage in such a way knowing that he is here and wanting to do that. Now maybe there's some things that we need to do so that we could begin to lean in and move forward. Maybe you just need to be more disciplined. Maybe you should just leave your phone in the car. Or maybe you need to scoot up so you're not so distracted by other people. Or maybe you need to move back. Maybe there's just something small that you can do, something that you could do to change with your hands, something you could change with your posture so that you're actually here. Maybe there's something you could do that would help you be fully present. But here's the wonderful news, is that God wants to help you be present. That this isn't just simply about you deciding today to be a better worshiper and squeezing your hands into fists and doing it through effort. That God comes through the power of his spirit and wants to assist you. He wants to help you. It's a part of it is simply saying to God, God, I want to go deeper in worship. God, I want to be more present. And he delights to give to us what we need. That he doesn't ask anything of us. That he does not also provide us the means to accomplish it. So we come to God and say, God, we are desperate to have a deep connection with you. And he simply comes to us and says, child, that is exactly the same thing that I want for you and I as well. And so let us change our posture. Let us change our attitude. Let us become present and let us reach out to God and ask for him to draw us near to him as well.
me stand together. And after hearing that, we want to be a people who are leaning in together, amen? Who are here to lean into the Spirit together. So would you bow your heads with me? Sean just said um, that, that maybe our posture should be to tell God right now as we come into worship, Lord, I want to go deeper in worship. God, I want to lean in deeper. So maybe say that to God right now. We want to go deeper in worship. We want to lean into your presence. God, we want to believe that you are here, that you're active you're doing things in our soul. Let's lean in together as one, in unity together tonight. Let's lean into the Spirit. with my agenda. Sing it. I'm sorry when I've come with my agenda. I'm sorry when I forgot that you're enough. Take me back to where we started.
just want you and nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do. I just want you and nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do. together. Uh, it's important to remember that worship is always happening around us, regardless of whatever we are doing. That currently, right now, there is a church somewhere in China who is praying, who is worshiping, where there is preaching that is happening. They may be public, they may be underground, but right now, as they are worshiping, we are, in a sense, joined to them in that worship. We don't know them. We may not meet them until eternity. We have no connection to them. We are worshiping in different languages, and yet we are unified as being a part of the body of Christ through the power of the Spirit that we worship together with them, that we are connected to all the saints in the world who are worshiping God. And so we're joined to them in that way. And in this mysterious way, all of creation around us is worshiping as well. Scripture says that the stars, the moon, the sun, they declare the glory of the living God. Jesus says that if people remained silent and didn't worship him, then the stones and rocks and trees, they would, they would call out. Now, how do stones and trees and stars and suns, how do they worship? We don't really know, but we know that creation itself worships. In fact, we are told that it groans and it longs for the day of God's redemption to come. It cannot wait for the day when God completes his work. And right now in the heavens, we know that the angels sing again and again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so worship is the, the common place of the entire universe. It is what is always happening around us. We know that ultimately the final fate of all humanity and all of creation is that one day everyone will worship, everyone will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether that is done on their way into eternal judgment or to eternal life with Jesus. We do not know that just yet, but we know that ultimately the final seat of everyone is to proclaim that Jesus is who he says he is. And so when I worship, I am joining in all of creation and in all believers and with all the saints in this unifying act. And I'm also joining them in this continual act that is always happening and never, ever stops. When I was studying for this passage, I, I came across Psalm 34, 1, which says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. Now, we don't use that word extol very often. It's kind of dropped out of kind of common speech, out of our vernacular. And so I began to look at some of the other translations and how they might use it. And the new amplified translation, which is not one I ever use, I think they nailed it. Because what they say is this, I will praise God no matter what happens. 
That's an incredible way of taking this idea of I will exhort the Lord at all times and making it personal. I will praise God no matter what happens. That is quite a thing to say. Because you and I face so many different forms of trouble and trial and challenges over the course of our lives that are incredibly difficult to live through, little less smile through, and certainly not praise through. I mean, how do we smile or worship or praise when we're in the midst of grieving? We're in the midst of a miscarriage. When we are angry or when we're suffering from paralyzing anxiety or depression. When we're lonely and we're wondering, are we ever going to meet someone who's going to love us in the way that we long to be loved and that we could give our own love to? When we are so stressed that we have lost the ability to sleep at night without melatonin. When our own sin seems to chase us down and we cannot get away from it regardless of how we try to discipline ourselves. How do I worship when my life explodes? And is that actually the expectation that somehow I should be able to praise God at all times, no matter what happens, that even when I am in the bottom of my life, when things have bottomed out, that in that moment I'm supposed to join with the angels? In that moment I'm supposed to join with creation, to join with the saints? Is that what I'm expected to do? You know, we, we don't have to ask the question because Scripture actually, it tells us of of people who do that very thing. There's a book in the Bible named Habakkuk, which you haven't read and cannot find. But Habakkuk 3, 17 to 18, the book ends with this really poignant, really honest praise to God in the midst of trouble. It says, Though the fig tree, though it does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He says in the midst of famine, when even we do not have anything to eat and tomorrow we're going to have less to eat, even then I will praise you. Let's be honest. We do not know how to worship God in these kinds of times. We know how to worship God when things are going well. When we are in the midst of praise, when the drums are going and the guitar is loud and the smoke machine is filling the room, when everything is going well, it is so easy to praise God. And yet when things hit rock bottom, sometimes we struggle to be able to worship God actually in that. In fact, sometimes our words and our prayers to God are, are fairly accusatory. Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. We can say that to God, but we don't know how to actually give praise. But friends, one of the fascinating things is that Psalm 22 is praise. Even though it brings challenging words to God, difficult words, you know, emotional, pain-filled words, even accusatory words, it brings them to God. And you know what Scripture says to them? That they're worship. How can those words be worshipped? How can words that even be angry or accusatory to God, how can they be worshipped? They are worshipped because in going to God, there is some acknowledgement that is still worship. As I go to God, even in the midst of the pain and accusation, I am making a statement that God still hears me. That he is still listening. That he still has the power to change things. That he is still connected to me and will receive my prayers. And that he can turn the knob. That he can change the station. That he can bring an end to the trial at any given moment. And so even though I am hurt, and even though I might be shaking my fist, still in that prayer, there is an acknowledgement that God is exactly who he says he is. And as a result... Scripture calls that worship. And in fact, in the midst of bringing those kinds of prayers to God, we begin to be changed in and of ourselves because every prayer that we pray to God, he promises to both hear and to heal. The most challenging wound, the most doubt-filled heart, the most paralyzed that we get with anxiety or panic or whatever it might be, when we bring those things to God, he not only hears them, but he heals them. I read to you the beginning of Psalm 22, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the end of the passage is fascinating. He ends this way. I'm going to declare your name to my people. 
and the assembly I will praise you. So he begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, I'm going to go to church and tell people how great you are. How does he go from one to the other? He does the thing that God asks us to do, which is that he brings those complaints and that pain to God, and he says it to him so that God can hear it and that he can heal it. This is what Scripture calls lament. Lament is to complain to God about our life, about this world, even about himself. And Scripture calls lament worship when it is brought there to him. And yet God promises again that he is never done working, that he is a God, as Romans 8.28 says, works in all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Which means that whatever you're going through right now, God has the ability to bring blessing out of it for you. That doesn't mean that at the end of every trial you get to win the lottery. That doesn't mean that everything suddenly gets to reverse and be renewed and suddenly everything is better. That is not what it means, but it means that there is something that God can have for us in the pain and the trials that we can only find in him through them. There's a way that we can worship him only as a result of having walked through them. And we could see David do it. And so we're going to pray now. Let me, let me actually take us into a time of prayer to get us ready for this. God, there are some who know these prayers well because they are profoundly disappointed and disillusioned and they are lost and they don't know where you are or what you're doing. There are some who are still in the middle of grief. There are some who have very little hope right now. And God, they have taken a step back from you. because they don't know if they can actually be near you right now. And yet, God, you invite them to pray. You invite them to worship, to come to you still. And in so, God, know that they are heard and know that there's a healing that you can bring. God, would you do that in this time? Would you bring people to a place of healing and renewal in you? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
can be seated. You know, in the Old Testament, worship and sacrifice were always tied together. You, you didn't really ever do one without the other. So what would end up happening is that as you would get ready to go to the temple, as you would travel to Jerusalem to go and worship, one of the things that would happen is that you'd bring with, with you something to give to God. And depending on the festival or the date or what was happening in your life or sin that was present would determine the offering. Sometimes it would be grain. Sometimes it would be first fruits. Sometimes it would be doves or even lambs. It could, based upon the festival, it could change any of those things. But you always brought something of yourself to give to God as a sacrifice. It was a way of saying to God that you are worth this to me. It's a way of saying, God, I trust you more than I trust these things to provide for me. And it's a way of always making sure that your heart was aligned in worshiping him and not worshiping any other things. This would happen a few times during the year that we no longer practice as Christians. That we believe that Jesus has culminated as a final sacrifice and that we no longer have to bring these sorts of animals or these kinds of things to him. But worship is still sacrifice to us. There is still something that we do bring to God that is important in the equation. But, but what it is is actually kind of interesting. In Matthew 15, 1 through 2, you have this conversation happening with Jesus and the Pharisees. It says this, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. This was a part of the law. that You had to wash your hands before you could eat, and they weren't. And Jesus gives this incredible response in 7 to 9. He says this, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. It's, it's fascinating because what he says is he's quoting Isaiah. And Isaiah looked at worshipers in his day and said, These people, they give sacrifices, but there's nothing happening on the inside. There's nothing deeper. There is a form of sacrifice, but their hearts are totally disconnected from it. They don't actually care. They're just doing it because they, they're supposed to, not because they care. And Jesus says, that is still the same thing in his day. He looks at these Pharisees and says, you're doing everything perfectly, but your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far. You worship me. He says, your worship is actually in vain. If it was true then, we could assume that it could be true of us now. That worship, before it's anything external, it has to be something internal. Before I can come and sing and raise my hands and come and proclaim, before I can lead, it has to be something that's happening in here before it moves outward. That it has to be God touching my mind and I become to think about God and understand who he is. And as a result of thinking about God, it then moves my heart towards him in affection. And as I now have affection towards God, and as I understand his greatness, it then moves outward into worship. If it is simply outward worship with nothing else connected, Jesus says that it's worship in vain. That it doesn't matter. In a sense, it doesn't count. Look, we understand. I'm sure that you have received at some point in your life a gift that was given to you that was random. That felt strange. It felt like somebody needed to get you something and they just went into a store and grabbed something off the shelf and gave it. There was no heart in it. There was no thought in it. There was no personal connection in it. It was just a gift. And when you looked at it, you thought, I wish you would have gotten me nothing instead of this. That is how God feels when we come and offer him a form of worship, but our hearts are somehow disconnected from it when we don't actually give him our very best. Worship has to be in part sacrifice. That worship isn't just simply about singing here to God. It's about a life of worship that gives God a piece of every part of my life. And I think that's part of the issue. I think that's how we end up praising God without actually having hearts to praise him. Our lives are kind of like these, this tire that uh, my son was gracious enough to pull off a, a uh, cruiser for me. That these spokes are, in a sense, what makes up our life. That here's my marriage, and here's my career, and here's parenting calling, and here's my sobriety, and here is, in fact, my dreams, and this is my relationship with my mom, and this is that wound that I can't quite get past that follows me everywhere, and here's the travel plans that I want to make, and here's my savings account, and my 401k, and my retirement account, and, 
and here's my yard and my hydrangeas. This is, this is our life. And we think about it, of all the things that compose our lives, here is church attendance. Here is worship. It gets a spoke in the whole wheel. And that's how most of us go through life. It is part of what composes the entire tapestry of our life. But what Jesus says is the point of worship isn't that it's a part of our life, but it's in fact the center of it. It is the very hub. It is the thing that everything else connects to. In the eyes of Scripture, there is a way for you to worship outside of this room and never even singing. That worship is meant to be a constant heart's attitude and affection towards God that is always giving him glory, which means that there's a way for me to worship God even as a little league coach. There's a way to worship God with my finances. There's a way to worship God in my dating life. There's a way to worship God with my relationship with my mom. There's a way to worship God with the sort of pain in my life that I'm having a hard time getting past, that there is a way to worship him because he has the hub of our lives. And too many of us, it's a part, but it's not the whole. And Jesus points it out. He says, your hearts are far from me. And as a result, your worship is in vain. And although he is more than willing to hold up a mirror to us and reveal it, his invitation, again, is to come. Come, taste and see. Come see that I'm good. Come drink from the waters of life. Come and eat the bread of life and never be hungry and never be thirsty anymore. He says, come and enjoy me. He is willing to point out our sin and point out where we're missing, but he doesn't condemn. He only invites. He always invites us and draws us and woos us and chases us back to him. And in fact, every time you come here into this room with the invitation, he is there waiting to speak to you face to face. He's there willing to empower your worship. He is there willing to expand his presence in your life if you're willing to let him to become a whole worshiper. We have a chance to continue in that as we take offering, which we're going to do next. And if you find that any part of this sermon or any part of this entire experience is touching your heart in a unique way and you feel moved, I want to invite you to go and around the room. We're going to have a few of our prayer people scattered around. We have some people who'd love to pray with you and go a little bit deeper into what God's doing in your life. <laughs> Let's stand together.